Father, we thank you for the stillness this morning. And we can slow down even for a minute of our busy, hectic, hectic schedules just to be still, to be aware of your presence, to sit in your stillness, to ask you to move and change us through the power of your word and the power of your spirit, that it would get inside of us and make us different. Father, as we look at your son's crucifixion this morning and the characters at play in the Gospel of John, I pray that it would put a mirror up to our hearts and that we would see, God, how we need to change, what we need to repent of, what we can rejoice in. Thanks for your son. Thanks for this morning. Pray that you would speak to us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to be transformed, to be more and more like you, even as we walk out of these doors. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, it was a Thursday night, December 1st, 1955, and a seamstress at a local department store was on her way home after a hard day's work. She boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus as she normally did on our commute home, exhausted from her day. She paid the fare and walked back to her normal seat. As she sat down, the bus started to go and continued to pick up people along the way. And on its third stop, more and more people were filing into the bus because they were on their way home. The bus driver, all of a sudden in the rearview mirror, looked back and he saw that there were white people standing in the aisle. And immediately he pulls over the bus and he walks back to the middle of the, the bus and he takes the four colored only sign off of one aisle and he puts it back two more and there's four people of color sitting in those seats and he says, you guys need to move. Nobody moves. The bus driver again says, y'all need to give up your seats right now. Causes three people to move back to the bus. One person stays still. Years later, recalling the events of that night, Rosa Parks said, when the white driver stepped back towards us, he waved his hand and ordered us up out of our seats. I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. Determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. Parks later said about being asked to move to the rear of the bus, she said this, I thought of Emmett Till. A 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi earlier that year after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store whose killers were tried and acquitted. And she said, I just couldn't go back. That's what was in her mind at that time. The bus driver said to her as he looks at her, he says, why don't you stand up? And Parks responded, I don't think I should have to stand. She was obviously, as many of you know, arrested that night for civil disobedience. But that sparked the Montgomery bus boycotts, which was a pivotal step in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. In her autobiography, My Story, she says this. She says, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. But it wasn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me being old. I was only 42. She said, no, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And refusing to stand up that night, Rosa Parks took a stand 
for what she knew was right. And where we're going to find ourselves this morning in the Gospel of John in chapter 19, we're going to look at these characters, and we're going to look and ask the question, what do you stand for? We've been in the Gospel of John, so if you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 19. Let me catch you up in the narrative if you're new with us. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for the last couple of years. We'll finish it out in Easter. But specifically, this last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this character, Pilate, as he shows up in all four Gospels, and John's narrative is a little different than the other three, which we need to pay attention to. So here's the story. Jesus, in the middle of chapter 18, is with his followers. He gets arrested. The Jewish leaders come, and they arrest Jesus, and they want to bring him up on charges because they don't like what Jesus is saying and what he is doing. It's threatening their control. But they know they can't kill Jesus themselves because of his following and his crowd. And so they go, okay, here's what we're going to do. They scheme a plan where they go, okay, we're going to bring him to the Roman authorities who we're under because the Roman authorities will not allow somebody to say that they are a king and that they're trying to overthrow this Roman government. So that's the play we will do. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate. That's when we picked up a couple of weeks ago, Pilate walks in and has face-to-face interaction and contact with Jesus, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. And his attitude is kind of cynical. He's kind of annoyed that he's having to deal with this problem. But as he interacts with Jesus face-to-face, he realizes something is different. Right? Even in his cynical attitude, he starts to realize, who is this? Seems like he's cracked the door open to his heart of curiosity to knowing who Jesus is, even in the midst of his cynicism. In the midst of that curiosity last week, Juan unpacked for us. He goes back out to the crowd going like, well, your tradition says this, that on a Passover, you release a criminal. I have this criminal named Barabbas, who was a robber. More uh, Currently, he would be like a terrorist. He's guilty. He's a bad guy. Or I have this king of the Jews, Jesus. Who do you want me to release to you? crowd says, give us Barabbas. That's who they ask for. So Pilate releases Barabbas to the crowd. And Jesus literally takes the life for Barabbas, for his own. That's where we pick up this scene. So here's what we're going to do. There's 27 verses that we're going to be covering this morning, starting in verse 1. We're going to walk through it, and let me just kind of set the scene a little bit for you and what's going to be happening, and then we'll go back and we'll read the text together, and I'll point some things out just so you're aware, and then we'll say, what does this have to do with us today? So here's what's going to happen in these 27 verses. The first scene that we're going to see is what Pilate does to Jesus, the first three verses. This is the less description out of the four Gospels of what happens to Jesus as he is flogged and scorned and mocked. This is not something you will ever see in a VeggieTales episode. It's violent and humiliating, but again, John's Gospel shares it the least amount. We'll see that happen in the first three verses, and then we'll see how Pilate interacts with the crowd the next several verses, and then the crowd says something that spooks Pilate. It makes him wonder, and he goes back into Jesus, and he asks him a question based on this new information he gets from the crowd. We'll see this interaction back and forth between Jesus and Pilate. And then we'll see that Pilate has this struggle to release Jesus. He's become face-to-face. He's implicated with this person, 
But the problem is the crowd's voice overpowers that desire. We'll see that in verses 12 through 16. Then we'll see John's account of Jesus being crucified, verses 16 through 24. And then there's this small interaction, the last two verses we'll cover today, verses 25 and 27, with Jesus, his mother, and one of his disciples. So that's kind of the roadmap for where we're going to go. If you have a Bible, open it up if it's not already open. Um, there are some Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you need that, you can open your phone or follow along on the screen with us. John chapter 19, starting in verse 1, says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They said, they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that I know that I find no guilt in him. Let's stop here for just a quick second. What's happening, I think, in this moment, as we've tracked with Pilate along in the story, I think he's curious about Jesus, and I think he's going, I don't really think he's doing anything wrong. I don't think he's claiming to be king. Or even when he says he's king, he's talking about his, his kingdoms in another place. He doesn't seem like he's a threat to Rome. So what I think Pilate is doing in this moment is like, hey, we're going to beat him up really good, and then I'm going to bring him out to the crowd, and you'll have pity on him, and you'll go, okay, let's not, let's not kill him. That's what I think is happening in this moment. He brings Jesus out to the crowd, and again, he's saying, I find no guilt in him in verse 4. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law that according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Verse 8, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And let's stop there just for a second to see the nuance in the text. John gives us a clue. If we're good readers of our Bible and we look at the words accordingly again in verse 8, he says that Pilate was even more afraid. So already that gives us a clue that Pilate is afraid. Now after hearing what the Jews say to him about Jesus claiming to be God, it makes him even more afraid. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, we get this interaction that we see that Pilate's wife, when he's sitting on the judgment seat, where he's deciding if it's Barabbas or Jesus, he gets this note. His wife texts him and says, hey, I had this dream last night. You need nothing to do with this righteous man. I was tormented in a dream because of it. So he's already a little spooked. He's already going like, okay, this Jesus isn't who the Jewish people are saying he is. There's something different about him. And remember, he's Roman, so he has this kind of superstition about the gods, that gods could actually come down. And so now he's going, okay, what have I gotten myself into? The Jewish people are saying he's threatening Rome and calling himself a king, but in reality, I'm seeing like, he doesn't seem to be doing that. He doesn't seem to be defending himself. And now when I'm saying, hey, behold the man. Look, this is the person that is going to go to the cross. And they're saying, actually, it's less about him being a king and more we want him to die because he's claiming to be God. It freaks Pilate out. He goes back into Jesus, verse 9. He says, he's entered into the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, 
you will not speak to me? Do you know I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate heard these words, and he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Galbatha. Now, it was that day in preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Again, he says, behold the man at the beginning. Now he's doubling down and saying, no, 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 the only reason I'm going to crucify him is because you're calling him a king. That is it. I'm washing my hands of this son of God stuff. Behold your king. Verse 15. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Again, the chief priests are the religious leaders of the Jews. Remember that. They're their pastors, the elders of the time. That's what they say. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there he crucified him. And him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Verse 23, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Now, his tunic was this outside cloth that was probably the nicest part of Jesus' outfit, just so you have context. It said, but the, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Verse 24, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is quoting from Psalm 22. And John does this all over his gospel. We're going to actually see next week because he does it even more as he doubles down on this prophecy language and why that's important for believing. Again, they divide the garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Calapas, and Mary Magdalene, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So what is going on here? Why is John giving us this version of what's happening? Why does he use the details he does? Why does he use the language that he does? And how does this language help me believe more in Jesus? 
right? We've been talking about it all through the Gospel of John. The whole point that John writes his Gospel is what? He says it at the back end of the book in chapter 20, verse 31. This is why I write these things, that you would believe. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, you would have life in his name. So everything we read has to be gridded in the Gospel of John through that lens of belief. How does this help me believe more in Jesus? That's the question we're going to hopefully answer this morning. Navy SEALs have a phrase that they use often. They say this. I don't know if you've heard this before. They say, under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion but you sink to the level of your training. You don't rise to the level of the occasion. Everybody's like, well, you're going to rise to the pressure. They go, no, 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 you don't rise to the pressure. You actually sink to the level of your training. And that's why they train so aggressively because the situations that they're involved in and the pressure goes like this. What we're going to see in the interaction of the text we just read through five different groups of people, what do they do when the pressure goes up? And what does it mean for us? The first person we need to address as we walk through the test is Pilate. Out of these five groups, Pilate, what does he stand for? Pilate stands for the acceptance of others. That's what Pilate stands up for. He finds no guilt in Jesus. He wants to let him go, but what? He doesn't want to disappoint Caesar. Right, that seems to be the turning point in the narrative in verse 12 when the crowd comes back to him and says, listen, if you say he's not going to go and be crucified, you're siding with him. And that means you're not a friend of Caesar. Pilate does not like that. We do see that Pilate does stand for something in the midst of it. In verse 22, if you look back down at your Bibles, he does have some type of spine because the Jewish leaders are going like, hey, we don't like what you wrote on the sign there. We want you to change it because it implicates us and it kind of pokes fun at us. And Pilate goes, no, 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 no. What I've written, I've written. So he does know how to stand for something in our text. But again, he is conflicted. He's come face to face with the person of Jesus. He's been implicated, but he realizes if he bows his knee to Jesus, that means he disappoints Caesar and he disappoints all these other people. Have you ever experienced that before in your life? For some reason, somebody introduces you to Jesus, or maybe you already know Jesus, and you're face-to-face -face with what he is telling you to do, and you go, no, I can't do that. Jesus is telling me to do that. No, 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 I can't do that, because everybody would see it. And then they would act a certain way towards me. They would feel a certain way towards me. Have you ever had those moments in your life when God calls you to do something, but you don't think you can do it because of the acceptance or lack of acceptance of other people? We're going to celebrate baptisms on Easter this year. And some of you have been walking with Jesus for a little bit of time. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and you've never made the decision to be baptized for whatever reason. And as we have conversations going, shouldn't you get baptized? You go, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, that's like really vulnerable. you got to walk up in front of a bunch of people and then get in water and get wet, and people are crying, and like, ah, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know about that. What are the things that God is calling you to do, 
But because of the acceptance of others, you're going, ah, I don't want to do that. That's what's happening with Pilate in this moment. I remember when I felt a clear call in college to ministry full-time after I graduated college, and I was having a conversation with one of my professors, and I walk up to his desk, and we're talking about the work that I'm doing, and, and he owns a company in the field that he is teaching locally there, and he goes, hey, what, what are you doing when you graduate? And I think he was looking to say, hey, would you consider doing an internship with me? And I said, well, I'm actually going to go into full-time ministry, which was like, Aliens are going to pick me up from the sky. He had no categories for it at all. It was not a follower of Jesus. And he said, you're going to do what? And I said, well, I'm involved with this group that shares about Jesus with these certain people. And again, he just looked at me and he goes, so you're not going to use your degree for your next job? I said, no, I'm not. I mean, the, the group I'm coming on staff with, you have to have a degree, but I'm not, I won't be doing this. And he just kind of shook his head. I was like, what a waste, because he kind of said that to me. And then I remember having the same conversation with my dad about going into ministry. And he was kinder. And then like a month later, he goes, hey, what are you going to do when you graduate? Talked to him a month later. I go, I, I told you, I'm, I'm going into ministry. He goes, no, 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 no. Like he thought it was just like I was going to pass or something. Like, ah, he's out of his mind. And he did not think that was the right decision for me. And I care about what my dad thinks. I think all young men do. But I felt clear that God was like, this is what I want you to do. I don't care whoever says anything about it. Do you have that level of conviction of standing up for things that God is calling you to do, even in the midst of the people that you know are going to oppose your decision? Or maybe they're going to say something behind your back. Or maybe they're going to make fun of you. That's where Pilate is wrestling with this tension. He gets exposed to the person of Jesus. And he'll never be the same again. But those other voices are too loud. That's the first person that we see in our narrative. The second is this crowd. What does this crowd stand for in the midst of what we just read? The crowd stands for nationalism, power, and position. Now, I want you to remember, these are God's people in this moment. They are the leaders of the nation of Israel, which is supposed to be a light to the nations, which is supposed to care for people and love people, but they have gone so far away from what God desires for them in the Old Testament. They've totally capitulated to the ideals of the Roman government, and they're in it for this nationalistic perspective, this power, and this position. We don't ever see that today, do we? Like, that's not anything in our news or anything that happened a little over a year ago, right? Like, like, this is crazy that this is what's happening. Look at what they say, again, down at your Bibles in verse 15. They say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. Do you see how far off they have fallen from the Old Testament? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God lays out the instruction for what a king is supposed to be. We're going to talk about it in depth this summer. We're going to look at the lives of Saul and David and Solomon and what it means to be a king and how all three of those men have traveled far from the way that God has laid out a king to act. 
and God's people have forgotten. We don't, we don't have a king. God is supposed to be your king. That's what he tells them to do. And the religious leaders are siding with Caesar, this nationalistic power and position, oversiding with what God is calling them to do. They've even forgotten who their king is. The crazy thing is, like, I don't think they think they're out of line. I don't think they think they're off the reservation. I don't think, I don't think they're going, yeah, we've made a bad decision here. I think they think, no, we're defending God in this moment. Clearly, this guy is claiming to be God, and this is not right. I think it's a healthy challenge for us to go, man, where have we bought into this political rhetoric of like this American evangelism? And to ask somebody that knows you, hey, do you, do you see that in me? Do I make politics way more important than I make Jesus? Because you're not going to see it in yourself. You're going to think it is helping Jesus. And you need to get around some people that can be honest with you to go, yeah, that's, that's probably not good. That's probably not loving. That's probably not caring. So again, we see Pilate, he stands for acceptance of others. We see this crowd stand for nationalism, power, and position. The next group we see are these soldiers. Starting in verse 23, the soldiers stand for personal gain. Look back at your Bible, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. So there's four soldiers there from that. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. I think they're doing this moment as they're going like, okay, this was a tradition that you would tear these certain things and you would get a piece if you were a soldier of these crucifixion. But they said, man, there's some worth here in this tunic. Let's not tear it because if we tear it, you know what? Like, it's, I don't care if I have a piece of it. One of us should get the whole thing. That would actually be valuable. So they're going, let's, let's cast lots. Let's roll dice. Let's pull straws. Who's going to get the tunic. And really what we see here in this group of soldiers is that they are making a stand or they really are in it for their own personal gain. Have you ever used Jesus for your own personal gain? Right? If you're really honest with yourself, you're going, well, I'll come to church because she's coming to church. <laughs> or I'll come to church because he's going to church. Like, I kind of care about Jesus. I'm kind of okay with Jesus, and these soldiers probably were not. But clearly, they're only in it for their own personal gain, what they can get out of Jesus. That's a dangerous place to be. It really, really is. So we've seen Pilate, again, he stands for acceptance of others. We've seen the crowd stands for nationalism, power, and position. The soldiers stand for gaining personally from what Jesus can give them, but there's hope. There's two groups here that actually, it's not all bad, right? I know we're reformed, but there is some good here. Um, <laughs> look back in verse 25. The next group we see are these women and John, and it says that women and John stand for personal, or, or stand for faithful presence in the midst of tragedy. That's what they stand for. Verse 25, Igarun reads this way. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, the wife of Calapas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to the, his mother, woman, behold your son. 
And when he said to his disciple, behold your mother, from that hour the disciple took her into his home. I love that this women are standing there. I love that John gives us, and the, the other gospel writers give us the account that the women are there. Can you imagine his mother Mary watching her son be on the cross? I just can't imagine. And she's standing. I don't know how she's standing other than the power of God. How is she not just a pile on the ground? She's standing, the text tells us, with this community of other women that have been massively impacted by Jesus and by John, his disciple, who's been massively impacted with Jesus. They haven't run away. They're right there and they're looking at it. And imagine Mary just thinking when he's a baby, I held and I kissed the temple that now has a thorn in it. I rocked him to sleep. I cared for him. And to watch him be humiliated, naked on the cross, bloody, I can't imagine it. I also love that John is there in the midst of it. John never identifies himself in the whole gospel other than he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. I think the reason he uses that title is because he identifies more with that than anything else, even his name. And when you come to realize somebody loves you and you love them, you do crazy things, don't you? And this is a crazy thing that John is doing, standing up. He could be arrested. He could be killed himself. To be associated with Jesus, with these women, doesn't make any sense other than love. And John stands there at the cross with these women. And it's a beautiful picture. We see Pilate standing for the acceptance of others. The crowd stands for nationalism, power, and position. The soldiers stand for personal gain. The women and John stand for faithful presence in the midst of tragedy. And one last figure, Jesus. He stands for an upside-down kingdom. This whole text, this is kind of a, a coronation in reverse, right? Like he's being kinged and he's kind of being mocked in the midst of this, but he's going like, listen, my kingdom isn't about this power. It actually is subversive. And I'm only doing the will of my father. He displays where real authority comes from in verse 11. As he has this interaction in this dialogue with Pilate. He says, listen, Pilate, you don't actually have any real authority unless it's been given to you from above. Not only that, as I believe that he is displaying an upside-down kingdom as he gives love and kindness to Pilate. It's so interesting as we've been walking through how Jesus loves Pilate in the mix of these last three weeks. Look at, again, verse 11 down at your Bible. As Jesus answers Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Why does Jesus say that line at the end of Pilate? Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus doesn't need to include that. He doesn't need to defend himself in the moment. There, clearly, there's other parts where he doesn't speak at all. Again, what I think Jesus is doing, which is just crazy, the more I read Jesus, he's always loving the person right in front of him and the person behind him all at the same time. He can see Pilate is anxious. He can see Pilate is probably like, wait, what, what's going on here? And he gives him this little piece of comfort even in the midst of his interaction as he's about to be delivered to the cross. And what I love about Jesus in this last interaction between his mother and 
the disciple he loved, John, is he's displaying a new kind of family that happens because of his death. I love that. In the midst of our conversations at Preaching Collective, I'm like, why do you think that's in there? What, what is that about? And somebody said, listen, I think this is showing that you actually get a new family because of the cross. John is saying, behold. Pilate says, behold the man, behold your king. Jesus says, behold your son, behold your mother. He's saying, this is about family. And he's saying, if you want to take a stand for something, you cannot do it on your own. You need people around you. And all of a sudden, you're adopted into this family. This is your mother. This is your son. Obviously, I think there's practical implications of what Jesus is doing here, as his mom was probably a widow, and he was probably taking care of her. And so what's she going to do? He's loving her in that moment, even as he's dying on the cross. But there's something deeper happening. He's saying, this is the new family. Behold your son, behold your mother. And when we walk with Jesus, we cannot, we cannot do it on our own. We need community around us to hold us up, to lift us up, to encourage us. This is why community is so important to us. It's not so that we have big numbers of redemption communities or we can make you fill up your schedule for another night. It's because you need people around you to remind you of the truth of the gospel, to remind you to keep moving forward when you're exhausted, to remind you there's good in it, to pray with you. We need each other. And Jesus realized in this moment they need one another. And there's a new family that happens because of Jesus' work on the cross. It's called the church. And man, we need each other. So what do you stand for? We're ultimately going to look at what Jesus ultimately stands for as we get in to the back end of chapter 19 next week as he stands up for the powers of hell in the midst of his sacrifice and his ultimate death. But let me just challenge you. Where do you see yourself in those groups of people? Again, you're not Jesus, so don't, I'm the Jesus at the end, no. <laughs> where do you see yourself in Pilate? Will you care more about the approval of others than you do about what God is telling you to do and you know he's telling you to do it? And you keep going, ah, I don't think I can do it. Where do you see yourself in the religious leaders of the crowd grasping for power? Where do you see yourself trying to get personal gain from Jesus as we see in the soldiers? Or maybe you see yourself barely standing because of the power of God. And you're going, I need family. I'm so thankful for my family around me the church. Hopefully this text would help us see that we need to lay down our idol of acceptance of others, that we would be a people that lay down our idols of nationalism and power and position, that we would be a people that lay down using Jesus for our own personal gain, and that we would stand up and be a faithful presence in the midst of our own personal tragedies, and that we would stand up and align ourselves with an upside-down kingdom where we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. Let's pray on that end. Father, we need your help. Jesus, we recognize that apart from you, we're Pilate, we're the religious leaders, we're the crowd. God, we're the soldiers that are trying to stay, take stuff off of you instead of care for you. Would you help us be the women that we see in John? Would you help us align ourselves with your goodness 
in the midst of our lives. I pray that this text would challenge us, not just now, but as we walk through our weeks, you, Spirit, would begin to convict us of things that we see, that you would show us where we have cared more about the approval of others than the approval of you and being obedient to you. We need you to do that. We ask it in your name. Amen.